This podcast contains material that some listeners may find distressing. Content includes explicit language and themes related to workplace bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, stalking, physical and sexual violence, discussions relating to self-harm and suicidality, disordered eating, other mental health issues, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Behind Blue Doors, a podcast where women and allies have the right to speak their truth and share their stories. Hello, everyone. It's Susan here. Uh, Today, I have with me Lee and Maureen, and we are interviewing the uh, Honorable Michel Basterash. He was the Supreme Court Justice who was assigned to implement the Merlot-Davidson settlement, which was the result class action lawsuit that was brought forward by RCMP women. So thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. I'm so, so honored to uh, have you here and to hear what you have to say. And especially in our conversation we have last week, you are 100% an ally for women and for justice. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, I'm happy to participate because uh, I think it's important for women who are in the force and have been subjected to harassment, but not only harassment, but all of this retaliation and uh, fake inquiries to inform the public. I uh, am not convinced that the government has taken the appropriate measures to deal with these uh, issues. And uh, especially after uh, dealing with over 3,000 women in the RCMP, and I know there were many others who didn't participate, but who were subjected to uh, criminal harassment, that uh, it's uh, incredible. They, they, they don't see this as sort of a, a national tragedy. And I call it a tragedy because of all the women who have abandoned their profession, have become permanently ill. I know of two cases of women who committed suicide. And if that's not enough to convince people, I don't know what is. I, of course, am not an expert in policing, but uh, I did do uh, over a thousand uh, appeals in my life and a few trials as a lawyer. And uh, I think I have a pretty good idea of people who lie or make up stories. And I know for a fact that these women, especially those 600 who were interviewed, we're not making up any kind of story. Anyway, how, how can they be uh, complicit when they don't know each other, have never worked together? You have to be realistic. I think one of the problems is uh, the police uh, officers in charge don't want to believe that their force is committing these, uh, these actions of harassment, even the most serious uh, uh, events don't seem to raise the consciousness of these people enough to take uh, measures not only to deal with one issue that is before them, but before the fact that uh, it is in the culture of the police that there is an issue and that it has to be addressed as a general problem, not as a multiple individual problems. I I am sure 
that uh, the the public would be outraged if it really understood the uh, the importance of uh, the impact of this uh, lack of attention of the, this uh, serious event and it's uh, it's not only with regard to the the issue of harassment but it's because it is not providing us with the proper policing that we need I mean, if the women don't feel secure in their own jobs or in their own offices and that they are harassed generally, how can they be performing at the top of their capabilities? And how can the police say that it's really doing its job properly when a great part of its force is uh, is is worried and, and ill? Yes, Susan. Yeah. So I, you had said before that, you know, you think that the officers in charge, they either don't want to believe uh, that this is an issue, or perhaps I might suggest that some of them actually do believe that this, they know what's happening, but they're in support of it because they don't actually believe that women belong in the police. So they allow it to happen and they turn a blind eye or are actively part of the problem. And they have, in fact, themselves been perpetrators. And it's because of that occult, that, of the culture that allows that all to take place, all those mechanisms to, to kind of come together to allow it to continue. Well, as you know, in the study that I conducted, I found that there were people who have perpetrated these acts of harassment at every level of the organization. Well, what does that mean? It means that if you're at the bottom of the rank and are being harassed, who do you complain to that isn't himself guilty of some kind of harassment? And if he is, well, most of his colleagues know about it and uh, he don't. He doesn't want to be attacked. So they, they turn a blind eye or they try to convince people that it's uh, an incident. And uh, as, as I noted in my report, a great number of women said that when they complained and that they were believed, then the management said, oh, yes, but there are always a few bad apples. Well, it's not a few bad apples. It's, it's a culture that tolerates it and in some cases really supports it. And like you say, it's because right from the start, they weren't happy to have women in the force. So they wanted to prove they were right in saying that they shouldn't be there. So they're going to show them to be incompetent. They're going to show them to be incompetent by putting them in situations that are impossible. And uh, by not giving the proper training, not giving the proper support. And then, of course, can say, well, you see, we were right. They don't belong. The effort to devise a career plan for women joining the forces is a step that you can't avoid. There has to be a plan because then if you apply for anything better, whether it be a promotion, a transfer to a, a force that is, uh, or to a service that is better adapted to your condition, well, then they say, oh, but you can't go because you don't have the proper training. But that's the same person who refused the training in the first place. But the training should have been provided because there was a career plan in which it was to be done. 
and that it was the the way in which you, of course, would be happier in the forest, but also more competent. And uh, this, this, this to me is is why I I said to the commissioner when I spoke to her that she had to begin right from the start in the sense that their hiring system is faulty and then their training system is faulty. And of course, all of their organization, which provides for courses and transfers and everything is biased. Well, how do you want a woman to say, uh, I'd like to join the force I have something to contribute when she knows that she'll be facing all these barriers from day one. Well, in the system, yeah, the system is set up for women to fail. Yes, I think so. The sad part is, is women don't realize that they're going to fail. I think that's even the most saddest part is that they're not aware of all these barriers in front of them. It's not until they're far into their career or their career is in the past and they're able to look back on it that they realize what's happened to them and i think i think you capture that in your recommendations and you say that as well is that these women join their dream job right and they think they're going to help the world and and they're fully intend on contributing and then then all these barriers become apparent to them as they go it's along. It's so true that practically all the women that I interviewed who had left the force, uh, either voluntarily or not, all said it wasn't because of the work. They enjoyed to be officers. They still wanted to be officers. Their, their problem wasn't that. The problem was the circumstances and the environment in which they were asked to perform. And uh, this is why I, I don't understand why it, it seems so difficult for the management who really want to change things to understand the context in which all of this is, is appearing before us. I was just going to say, like, in relation to what you've just mentioned, having gone through a 21-year career, I loved being a police officer, and I've worked in numerous different units, including, you know, special victims unit and homicide, where you see egregious things happening to human beings. And that was not what broke me. What broke me was the internal system of what I had believed in, then turning its back on me and not supporting me and the laws that I was using to, you know, persecute and take, you know, a good case to court that was never done for me as a victim. So I, it, it was the internal abuse that broke me. It wasn't those daily things you deal with as a police officer, if you will, which can be quite egregious, as, as we all know, over a long career. Yeah, in the course of your duties. One yeah. of the things that had bothered me, and I discussed it quite a bit with some of the women that I met, is why is it that the men in the service that were not abusers stand up for for the women who were being abused. Because uh, it seems to me that it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'm in favor of women in the force. The, the question is, are you in favor of condoning injustice treatment, unfair treatment? 
no matter whether it's for a woman or a man. And and then they keep telling me, oh yes, but I'm they're looking up for the looking after their own career, and if they are supporting the the women that are uh, being abused, it's because they're also malingerers and want uh, some kind of change in the way things are run. I wanted to just bring up a personal experience with that. A very dear supervisor to me, who I think. A lot of I can't say enough about him when I was harassed he did stick up for me and the other sergeant was his counterpart like his you know and he did he'll say I didn't stick up for you because it was you I did what I did because it was the right thing so he followed the procedures and and went through the whole process the complaint process with me and everything else and in the end they actually turned around and blamed him for everything they, they gaslighted him and said that it was his lack of supervision and uh, other issues um, surrounding him that they brought up that they'd never brought up before to do with his own supervisory behavior or whatever. They came up with all kinds of reasons and he's never gone back to work. He's never been the same since. And so, you know, my advice to someone that I work with and with that, what I've been through, I would tell them it's probably not worth it to stick up for me. I hate to say that, but you you almost feel for other people that stick their neck out for you. You feel bad if something happens to them because you know it's going well, to. You know, I think a general member of the public would say, doesn't the police stand up for justice? I mean, uh, it's basic justice you're talking about. And uh, also, justice is not just about the result. It's about the procedure. You're supposed to be taught in policing about proper procedures, legal procedures, and of course, fairness. When, when you think all three are being set aside, you wonder what kind of police you have. If it, that same police who, who is treating you that way, how are they treating arrested people? How are they treating people that are in custody? I had never really thought about that very much. But after hearing all these stories, I said, well, if that's the way they think, if that's the way they see their moral obligations and legal obligations, uh, can I really trust them to deal fairly with, with, with the people they're arresting? And uh, do they have a dual personality that they're okay with them and not okay with people they work with? That's pretty hard to believe. Did you find in your research that there was a culture of not that it's uh, policing culture doesn't support reporting for these women? That it's not. Did, did any of your research find that it was not upon reporting it became worse? That it was unsafe? Like that it's the culture of policing that that takes away or has that stigma behind it of not. In reporting? a sense, it wasn't really the stigma of not reporting that I saw. It's a question of uh, attitudes. For instance, they would say, well, um, women are too sensitive about these things. They don't understand the joke. They, um, they take everything too seriously. And uh, Sounds very dismissive. It's very dismissive, but it, it goes a long way because I met quite a number of women who reported illegal acts such as taking part of the drugs they were seizing for themselves to resell and informing the superior officers of that 
and uh, they got into trouble for reporting it. And then you say to yourself, well, is it just you can't take a joke, your problem? Or is it that you take your job so seriously that you see a crime as a crime? And uh, this is why I, I tried to convince the people in government I spoke to and the commissioner that it wasn't just about women. It was about policing their methods, their values, their culture. And uh, I kept telling these people, uh, the people you hire have got to have a higher moral standard, and you've got to have a way of checking that. And uh, if, if you hire an abuser, well, he, he's just going to become a better abuser when he has some powers. So that, that is, is crucial to, be, to begin with. And I, this is why I think that uh, when we're talking about the RCMP in Regina in, in their six-month course there, I think anybody who shows any kind of attitude that is contrary to what we're looking for should be sent out and not, not rehired. That there is, this isn't a school or a reform school. It's, it's something else. Well, a couple of things that you said there, just kind of taking it back to, you know, wondering what these officers are doing with, you know, the people when they arrest them. But what about when they're responding to calls of domestic violence? How are they treating victims? Um, are they taking it seriously? Are they actually engaging in their duties the way they're supposed to in a moral way? Or if they have these underlying biases or prejudices, towards women or particular marginalized groups, what are they doing to those individuals who they might not even be arrested? They might just be members of the public calling for well, help. The answer I got to that is it's a woman's job. They don't want to police uh, these uh, issues. They want to send the women in the police to deal with these issues. And the reason for that is that they say that it's social work, not police work. And, and, and women are better at that. They, they're better at speaking to the victims. They're better at speaking with them when there are children around. And you, you've heard that a lot more than me. But it's, it was so generalized. It's incredible. It was the same, same story with regard to that in all the provinces, all the territories. I met some women who had switched after a while to uh, policing in uh, certain metro areas with Metropolitan Police, and they said that although there was a lot less harassment present there in their case, that it was still that same attitude with regard to women's issues, what they call women's issues, not real police work in, in a sense. Michelle, just for just for our, our listeners, you know, reading your report and looking at your various findings, just to summarize for for the listeners, some of the ones that you went through were uh, your assessors were aghast at the language used. For our listeners, if you don't want to hear these things, maybe shut your ears for a second. But you listed off things related to how women were referred to as split tails, cunts, bitch, canoe licker and beaver tail talked about sexual sexual misconduct which you've already mentioned at every level resolving complaints often resulted in a promotion for the harasser and and a transfer they 
there was many references made to the old boys club denial of training as a result of making for reprisal of making a complaint stalking behavior for women that were single and someone was interested in them and uh, exclusion from job opportunities was another one that you discussed and two misconducts that that uh, your assessors found really egregious was the uh, denial of backup and uh, discrediting women with either a criminal offense or an, a complaint, which we find very much behind blue doors, where a lot of the women that we speak to have been slapped with a PSA or a criminal code offense, and they've never had a problem before in their career until they made they made a report. I just wanted to go over the findings for the listeners, so they kind of knew some of the things that you had come across in your research. The it's very obvious that a lot of the uh, police officers that uh, harassed uh, women saw women as sexual objects. I mean, the, the phrase sort of sounds empty now because we've heard it a million times. But I remember, for instance, that some women were being posted in northern areas. It's very significant because if they're very young, they are going to be posted where there's maybe just one or two women and many men or uh, a few more men, and they're in a state of vulnerability to begin with. And I remember that two or three of women said that when there was a call to the officer in charge there, and they said, okay, uh, I've got a woman coming in. Her name is... He would ask directly, how pretty is she? Now, it's it, it's inappropriate and it's stupid in a way. But to me, it's really one of the features of that culture. You'd never ask uh, the man, you know, what does he look like? They might say, is he big and strong or something like that. But But even that wouldn't really come up. As, as, a, as a standard way of, uh, of looking at, at the new candidate that is coming up. And the, the question of backup is very important. Why is it important? It's because it's a scare tactic. Is the woman going to be scared? Is she going to complain? Or is she going to act like someone who is scared? And of course, if she is, then comes the uh, conclusion, well, she's not fit for the job. She, she, she doesn't have the nerve. But uh, they create the, con the condition under which this is going to happen. And it probably wouldn't happen to the same woman after five years in the force or 10 years in the force. But if she's in her first six months and she's 20 years old, well, what do you expect? Anybody would skip. It would be scared unless he's you know, not really attentive to the dangers that that he or she is facing. So to me, you know, it's, it, it was a question of hearing all these things and sort of putting it all together and trying to understand the, the general condition under which all of this is being analyzed. I didn't want to see it as a whole lot of uh, individual experiences but tie in together all of these things. And, you know, some people will say that uh, I exaggerate in, in, in taking into account the fact that someone would ask, uh, is the girl pretty? Well, most, most young men would pay attention to how 
pretty the girl is. But but to make it sort of a a first uh, reaction at the fact that a woman is going to be joining their force, uh, to me, signals something. Just a quick question. With all the women that you spoke with, I imagine a good number of them were married to or had been married to police officers or in partnerships with police officers. Did you find women speaking about being abused by their police officer spouses or partners? Like domestic abuse, did that come up a the fair bit? The great majority of them were married and the great majority of them were divorced. The great majority had children. The exceptions were those who were uh, not not engaged at all uh, in any way, and uh, some of them would have been homosexual. And I'll mention a few things about the homosexuals in a, in a while. But to, to answer your question, most of them didn't say that they were abused by their husbands. But they all said that the police did nothing really to support the needs of the family. Like they, they would put them in a situation where there was no possibility of getting a proper care for the children or proper schooling for the children. Or they would send the husband working 100 miles away from his family and he had to travel on weekends to get home but then when he gets home he only gets home with chores and problems and that created so much stress on on the family itself that um, that it, it, it broke up and uh, I think also uh, when they were separated one or the other, got into some kind of substance abuse or liquor abuse. And that was a major factor in some of the uh, divorces. But there were cases, uh, as you mentioned, where there was uh, family uh, violence, but uh, it wasn't really uh, greatly uh, present in, in the interviews that I conducted. So, Michelle, you had mentioned, you made a comment earlier just saying that, you know, the government hasn't dealt with it appropriately. What do you suggest it needs to look like? And I believe that was part of your findings as well with your suggestions. If you could just talk a little bit about that. Well, I think if it took it uh, seriously, there would have been not an 18th study to study my study, which they've been doing, as you know. But, but there should have been some people appointed to work with the police itself in preparing a response to all of my recommendations. But the recommendation they didn't want and that they didn't accept is the one where I said that to look at internal reaction only was going to be insufficient because it was too institutionalized. There were too many people up the uh, the scale that were guilty themselves of harassment to count on them to combat harassment. And I, I don't want to accuse all those people that are not the perpetrators, but if there are many of them within the system with some kind of leverage and power within the system, they're going to block things. They're, they're going to make sure it doesn't happen. And I think one of the reasons that their reviews in the past never worked is that what they did 
is they adopted new policies. They made little films on harassment. They produced papers on harassment. But you know, to me, if, if you take an abuser and, and try and teach them that abusing is not right, it's a, a loss of time. They know what they're doing isn't, a, isn't right. They know it isn't fair, that it isn't legal most of the time. So I don't know that education is, is, uh, is the solution. It might be part of the solution in Regina in their school, but not, not halfway down the career line, I, I don't think. So they know that uh, the change has to be operational. And uh, I think they're know, they know that they have to hire the right people, train them in the right way, give them a career plan, give them a chance to prove themselves. Now, the other thing, and you know policing better than me, but I don't understand why there's only one model of police. Why is it that in the RCMP, you have to have the same exercises uh, the same uh, training exactly for uh, persons who are physically and mentally different. Mentally in the sense that they have a different career plan in their heads. They have different objectives. Well, why not find that out and help them develop in the areas in which they want to develop? and that they care to give the effort. And I think their model of the police is uh, Wyatt Earp. I don't know, but, you know, he's got to be big, he's got to be strong, got to be willing to fight, doesn't bother him to kill someone. Well, uh, I'm not sure that's the kind of police we want right away. Well, just from my experience working in recruiting, uh, I will say that on paper, they want very educated people that do come from good families that, um, you know, have integrity and, and they also want them to be diverse from people to be from diverse backgrounds. But you're right. Once they put them through that machine called training, they want all these people that have brought all these great skills and abilities to the table to go through the, the press and come out the other side, like a robot, like all the same. And why did we hire them with all these great skills and different backgrounds? And, uh, you know, because that's what we say we want. But then at, when it comes down to it, we want everyone to come out the same way. It's to tick the boxes and to give the appearance that you're building something different than what was. I remember uh, some women who had been in the army before coming into the RCMP. And some of them uh, had learned to become very good helicopter pilots. And they needed helicopter pilots in the RCMP. But then they put these women in situations where they either weren't really doing the helicopter work or were under the supervision of people less trained than they were and blocking them every inch of the way in developing. So it's wasted resources at, at best. But it's also terribly unfair, like you say, to hire the person because of her skills and then say, oh, yeah, but you can't, we can't really give you the opportunity to work in this area because, because you're a woman and you won't fit in with the guys there. And of course, uh, in, in, in that particular example, 
there weren't very many other women, of course, who were helicopter pilots. So, so she never fit in because she was with all the boys. Uh, the other thing, you know, that I, I, I want to mention because it's very important. Everybody always talked about the boys club. And everybody thinks the boys club is only the guys uh, in the top floor there uh, in Ottawa. No, no, no. The Boys Club is something much more spectacular. It exists all over the place. And it, it's sometimes it's, of course, at the very senior level, but sometimes it's middle management and sometimes, you know, lower middle management. And this is where I got the expression. I, For those who read the report, you saw it a couple of times when women told me, I can't be promoted because I don't play hockey. And that's because... In some areas, they had a hockey team. And then on the hockey team, well, you had a lot of the boys who run things. And in, in the players' room or whatever, well, they discuss their work. And then they decide, well, this person would be great to get a promotion. We should send him for a course. No women are there because they're not playing hockey. And this is why they say that... Uh, there is a boys club and the boys club in that case is the hockey team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. This idea that all these key decisions are made, like you say, within the locker room, as opposed to fair and transparent processes. It, it is, it's it's hire, hiring for based on nepotism, right? Instead of skill level. So I just wanted to throw that in. And I just, I guess I'm, you've done this report it's so concise. It speaks so truly to any of the women who have been through this when we read it. Why now, why do you believe that they now have other assessors and looking at your report and, you know, why isn't it enough to say, yeah, we have a massive systemic cultural problem and we've got to fix it instead of, okay, now we're going to look at Michelle Basarash's report and we're going to have someone else come in because we're not really sure that he's really picked up on the issues here. How can we ever have change if, you know, like with your report being so on point and it's still being ignored? Like well, and it's report after report after report and nothing changes. I would suggest, Lee, that that's part of the playbook, isn't it? Again, sorry, Michelle, it's where someone who's competent and done their research has presented it, and because it doesn't match what they want their narrative to say, they're second-guessing Well, the it. reason is that if they accept what I'm saying, they have to accept that they've been wrong. They've got to admit that their hiring process has not been good that they haven't been fair in dealing with grievances. And that is a big pill to swallow. And uh, I wondered after I wrote the report whether I could have done something to avoid that. But I, I'm not sure that there is a way. As you know, I'm a very pragmatic person. I didn't want to give them some kind of uh, academic review of the question. I can do that. I've done that quite a few times in my life. But I wanted to tell them exactly what has to be done and that there is evidence to support the recommendations that I'm making. And, uh, you know, I, I, I told the people that I spoke to, 
it can't be that 3,000 women were wrong about the uh, incidence of harassment in, in the force. And it, just the fact that you, you at one point they had 1,000 women on stress leave. 1,000, all at once. Well, in any normal corporation, they'd go crazy and say, well, look, uh, there's something terribly wrong. This is costing us a fortune. And this uh, proves that there is uh, an endemic uh, issue to be dealt with. But here, no, it's, I don't know, it's only money or something. And uh, they, they just go on and, and try and deal with the uh, individual people who are, who are affected. And the other thing that is uh, hard to understand, you remember the story about the two doctors who for years and years abused the women that they were uh, supposed to, uh, uh, in order to be accepted uh, in the force. People knew about it so well that they warned some of the women going in for the testing, oh, be careful, uh, make sure the nurse is present. Well, what, what is this? Uh, now they're, uh, I was told that they're going to have another program to compensate those women because I, I, I as you know, couldn't uh, deal with them because uh, they had to be members of the force uh, when, when they were harassed to be compensated. And of course they weren't, they were being checked to become members of the force. And I said, that's a technicality, it makes no sense here. And I pleaded with the commissioner to start a different program for them, and she told me she was doing it. But, but that's still a question of compensation. And uh, compensation isn't the real issue here. And most of the women that I dealt with were not really, uh, you know, there to get compensation. Most of them talked about uh, the different uh, things they'd been through and wanted to make sure that no other women would be faced with those same situations. And what could I do to make sure that they were treated fairly? And uh, I got dozens of letters after the whole process from some of the women I interviewed who told me what was important was being heard and being believed more than anything else. And uh, I believe that to be true. Thank you, Michelle, for that. One of the things I wanted to point out from your report was you talk about how the women that you spoke with and the, that the assessor spoke with, that the women were diagnosed with serious psychological injuries from major depressive disorder, PT, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized, generalized anxiety disorder, panic attacks, substance dependence, that there was a complete lack of trust of the RCMP and actually a complete lack of trust of all men after these abuses and having feelings of isolation, withdrawal of social activities, friendships, sexual relations, humiliation, lack of self-esteem, lack of confidence, eating disorders, alcohol abuse, vomiting on the way to work. I mean, I have heard these things from so many women and a lot of it really even relates to myself and things that happen or how I feel after going through all of this. So for you and having that come out in the research, can you just speak on that a little bit? I, I put that in. I knew it sounded very dramatic and, and it was because I wanted people to understand the effects of all these things. It isn't just 
unfairness, not being treated right. It's the impact on your health. And of course, it impacts their whole family. A lot of them, uh, a lot of the women told me, I, I was in such a terrible condition at home that my children stopped speaking to me. Uh, teenagers left home. Uh, of course, divorce uh, occurred also. And uh, after, uh, after a while, I heard that some men uh, who talked about the report on the internet of all places, I hardly ever read the internet, but some people show me things. And they said, ah, you see, we told you they couldn't handle it. <laughs> that was their reaction to it. Well, you know, it's, it's the opposite of what I wanted to establish. And I was a little surprised at that reaction at first. But uh, I don't know. I don't know that I could have done it really differently. I was very appreciative uh, when I read your report. So I had been designing my research study, as you know, and it was set, it was before the ethics board at that point. And your, your report came out. And I remember thinking, thank goodness someone has looked at this because I had found that nobody, none of the research, none of the, you know, we talk about all these experiences, you see them in the news, but nobody except for those victims really understands the aftermath and what these women experience. And it's not just women. So, I mean, this podcast is about women, but it's anybody who goes against that grain and is the recipient of that retaliation, the devastating consequences. And so while my the women I spoke with is a small number in comparison to the number that you spoke with, it just reiterated that all of the things that they were telling me and I knew to be true, well, someone else had now uncovered this as well. So it was... I'm so sad that it has to come out like this and that these have been the experiences. But I was also very, very happy that these women came forward and had talked about it because it speaks to the larger issue. And it's not just women being uh, sensitive or embellishing or being dramatic. No, these are real stories with real people behind them, with families. Do you know uh, anything about some kind of a response from these women or I had expected that some of the women I interviewed who said they didn't care about being uh, known to the public uh, would come out and do interviews and uh, tell their own personal story um, because uh, people in television who, who see that uh, seem to get a better appreciation even if it's only coming from one or two uh, people. But there were two uh, interviews with Myrtle and Davidson, but I didn't see any others and uh, wondered why. Uh, maybe the journalists weren't looking for them either, but, uh, but I would have thought that it would have some kind of, uh, of impact, uh, at least on the, uh, on the listeners or, or maybe some of the members of parliament who I wanted to raise the issue. I wanted to have a debate in the House of Commons about the report. Ooh, and I, that would be so fantastic. I talked to two parliamentarians about it and two senators, and uh, I said it, it is important that there be a debate about it. 
And the opposition could at least say, well, uh, uh, what is the government doing? And, and, and maybe start it that way. I don't care if it's politicized or not. I just want it to be debated. And uh, the reason I want it to be debated is I think that it could lead to uh, some kind of uh, major commitment by the government to do something more than, than what they've promised to do. Because the answer from the government now, as you know, is very simple. We appointed a woman commissioner. That was her mandate to fix things. She's going to fix things, period. Well, and I think too, like that, that might apply to the military and RCMP, but you've got, what, over 200 municipal and then provincial police agencies across Canada that do not fall under that scope. However, the stories are the same. So it's a larger issue. It's not, it can't just be, you know, if you leave it up to the municipalities or the individual organizations to deal with it, they're not going to. Even if you look at the bill that was brought out about uh, the different agencies had to have a, a PTSD plan and that was made available online and you look at all the different plans, well, some are two pages and some are very extensive where you can see that they're, you know, they're trying to take it into consideration. But none of them that I'm aware of actually do any evaluations to see, is it working as intended? Are we are we making headway against this? And not to mention that PTSD accounts for a very small proportion of major disorders that are diagnosed in police when depression and anxiety are far, far more rampant and equally as debilitating. And I'll say that gazillion times over. They're, they're real issues. And a lot of them stem from the treatment within policing organizations and not necessarily as a result of the work that you're doing, but because of your colleagues or supervisors or the environment within which you work and come home to. But if there were some preventative measures, it would make a lot of difference because, uh, like you say, if you have a problem of anxiety, too much stress, and you intervene at that level, well, you're preventing that person from developing PTSD later on. And uh, this is what has to be done. You, you can't just have measures to deal with the people that are compromised and, and can't really continue working. Uh, then you're, you may be helping those people somewhat, but it's too late to do something very uh, effective both for the person and for the police force. I found it interesting, Michelle, reading the recommendations that a lot of these women made. And then I know that you then took those recommendations and made your own. But just looking at, they were just so simple. Like the recommendations that came through, you know, these women just wanted to see that someone who uh, was a harasser would be disciplined properly and then they would have no available or they would no longer be able to be in a management level or at least continue on in their career, which when you think about it, it's so simple, <laughs> you know, and some of these recommendations they made, they were bang on. And I mean, I know they went on forever, but um, nothing I saw was outrageous or nobody said lose their job or you know, everyone just wanted it to be fair. I, I wanted it to be there for two reasons. First of all, I wanted it to be there to show that the police have known for years and years, not only uh, that there was a problem, but there were suggestions on how to deal with them. Uh, 
But the second thing is that I figured a lot of these people in the boys club would say, what does he know about policing? So uh, I, I thought, well, if what I'm recommending resembles what is recommended by people who know policing and who've been there and who've seen the problems, well, it makes it a lot more credible. So it was sort of guarding against that kind of response. I have, I have one comment. So in your report, uh, you had said under the grievances and discipline process for your recommendations that mediation or other informal measures should should not be used in the context of sexual harassment accompanied by violence. Um, so to me, that suggests that if there's some sort of harassment or discrimination, that then those informal measures should be used. But to me, I, I don't think that mediation and unofficial methods in handling sexual harassment or discrimination complaints in general should be used just because a woman who has been sexually harassed or victimized by her peers to attend mediation with that perpetrator uh, it could serve to victimize that individual further, but then also uh, result in reprisal, not only by the perpetrators, but by other colleagues. And it's kind of that catch-22 where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you agree to go, you'll you know, you subject yourself to further re-victimization. But if you don't go, you're also opening yourself up to reprisal because now you're not, you know, you're not engaging in the process and you're being too sensitive or whatever. So uh, that was my my one, if you will, playing devil's advocate with your report was that, you know, it's either way, I think a victim is hooped if they are, if that's part of the process is going to mediation. And I can speak to that from personal experience. And I think that's why I I noted it. Well, mediation doesn't work because there's a total inequality of the two people that are in the mediation process. One is there with all the support of the force, and the other one is there, the victim trying to prove something. It seems to me that uh, when, when you've got evidence of the perpetration of the act, that then there shouldn't be another onus on that same person to to prove that something should be done about it. And uh, it, it, like you say, it doesn't work. And uh, it, it, it's a, another way of avoiding a real grievance process. But I don't know what kind of grievance process you can have in a system where the people involved uh, are, are going to sit there as arbitrators so you you have to have it outside well you, you saw that in uh, in the case of, uh, of the army the first thing that was uh, recommended by justice uh, Arbour was to uh, take it out of the grievance process and uh, directly into the courts and she didn't want it to go to a grievance process but to a court process because she says, and she's right, these are crimes. So if it's a crime, it's a legal issue. It's not something you arbitrate. And it's not something that should be dealt with under the Police Services Act as discreditable conduct when you're committing a crime against your own. No, it's, it's really a, a different standard that has to apply. And uh, that should be right. Uh, as you know, in, in my case, there were 32 
cases uh, of uh, rape that were really uh, substantiated in everything that I heard and saw. And uh, as far as I was told, there was only one police officer who was brought to court on that. And there was some kind of, uh, I don't know how to call it, but way of avoiding that for all the, the other people there. Uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention, because you mentioned it a while ago, uh, a lot of the perpetrators got promotions. Well, the, the reason they got promotions is that they either wanted to move out the perpetrator or the victim. And uh, if they had to move the perpetrator, they had to find a job for them. And usually it meant that they had to put them in positions where they were actually acquiring some kind of promotion. I don't think it was an intent to promote them, but the end result was that. And uh, in some cases, they moved victims and then they re-victimized them if they didn't want to move. But of course, they were in a situation where you accept to move or you accept to be uh, facing your perpetrator again in, in your work of every day. And uh, as you must have read, uh, whatever the regulations were, they sometimes took up to two years to complete an investigation. And most of the women never saw the report, uh, which is against every rule of administrative law. So they don't really seem to care about the law very much when they're processing their own cases. Yeah, Michelle, victims do not get disclosure when they're dealing within the grievance process. We're not allowed to see it. We will never be allowed to see our own disclosure. Yeah, and even when the decision's made, victims are not allowed to see any of it of, as to the reasoning behind it, none of it. I asked HR one time where the report was for the decision. And she looked at me and she said, oh, we don't, we don't give those reports. That's why I brought the supervisor here to explain it to you. And I said, no, I'm not going to give him the soapbox. If you don't have the report for me to read, then I'm not interested in hearing what he has to if say. If you don't have the report, most of the time you don't know uh, what kind of sanction was imposed either. Well, you're, we're not allowed to know what sanction was imposed. That's none of our business. They like to hide it. Well, because really, there you can't be a victim under... Now, I don't know if this is across all provinces and territories, but in some, as a police officer, you can't also be a victim. Well, it's under the Police Services Act, so it's yeah. an act across, all across. But but each, each, muni each uh, province and territory has their own specific act. So that's why I mentioned, like, I'm not sure if it's the same across. I know some jurisdictions where police officers can't be a victim. So it has to be the service. But I don't know the details of it. Yeah, I don't I don't know. But I would agree with you, Michelle, is that it's certainly not um, an open and fair and transparent in any way. And the people that are representing the victim are association representatives and association lawyers who still have strong ties and connections to the organization itself and the management. So there's no incentive for them to have it come out other than the way the organization intends for it to have to come out. But if the victim tries to get her own support for uh, an, an action, 
there's no way they can finance that. No legal support whatsoever for a human rights complaint. For instance, with my own human rights complaint, and I think Lee doesn't mind me saying this, for both of us, our service is now paying a Bay Street lawyer in Toronto probably over $800 to defend the service. And I'm supposed to defend myself because my association won't provide me with any financial aid. And that's another tool that they can use to make it go away, right? Because victims can't afford. Yeah. There's no incentive for them to even start a grievance or to pursue a grievance. They just tell you to go file an HRTO and, oh, by the way, we won't assist you financially. And if you uh, are uh, organized, is the union going to support you? No, we pay union dues. I've, I can't. Re- I, I added it up at one point. I can't remember how many I've paid in 24 years, but I pay union dues. But when it comes to me being a victim of harassment by my own service, they won't pay for me to pursue it in the human rights tribunal. But yet they didn't do what they were supposed to do via the grievance process either. So. And here's the other thing, Michelle, is if you have an officer that is under the same association as you, that is the perpetrator, the predator, he is covered for his legal fees. He's covered for his, but the victim who's been victimized within the police service is not provided legal fees. Well, and they're paid, typically they're suspended with pay, whereas the victim ends up going on disability at a reduced rate of pay. No, it's hard to find a system that is more unfair because at every turn, either you don't get support or you're financially uh, deprived of the means of defending yourself. It also uh, sort of uh, reverses the onus. Say you're, you're, you're supposed to prove something, but uh, in, uh, in fact, it becomes the trial of the aggressed rather than the aggressor, it seems to me. What do you think about having assist, uh, having an outside body for police officers to report? An outside body to report these sexual harassment, sexual abuse, uh, harassment, whatever the case may be in the workplace, because currently we are reporting it through our own chain of command that we don't trust We already know what's going to happen. I didn't report for six months because I knew it was going to be career suicide. And it was actually somebody else who reported it. And I was honest and said everything that did happen. But what do you think that an outside body being created where this is where people can report to instead of your own service, that it would be handled in a more appropriate way where it's going to be handled like a criminal offense. You know, like SIU in Ontario, they they will not touch sexual harassment. It has to be sexual assault. And their definition of sexual assault, according to the criminal code, can be quite, uh, feels quite different to me than uh, what it should be. But it's not safe for us to report internally. So is that anything that came up with, with your research, with your report that there needs to be a different system for reporting for these women. Yes, there was a, a lot of discussion at the end of the uh, interview process when I interviewed a lot of women who were very much higher uh, in the echelon within the RCMP and uh, knew more about the system. And I asked them, you know, uh, 
what they considered would be more appropriate and what would be workable. But nobody really knew what to do because they, uh, they said a lot that when it's a serious uh, physical aggression, it should be in a court of law and not in a grievance process. And then they said, well, how can that be? And that we're still there in the RCMP and these things can last a year or two and then there could be an appeal. So it's it's complicated and who's going to pay. And then, uh, like you say, to have an independent process, they were all worried about the retaliation because it, it can't be really secret if you're going to have witnesses. Somebody's going to talk. So um, I uh, I didn't know exactly what I could recommend. So what I recommended is that they try and find a way to uh, to provide protection within a process and uh, it it would have taken i guess some expert uh, advice on 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 what can be done i i wanted to know and and tried to find out whether there are um, processes uh, in different states in the United States or other countries uh, that would provide some kind of models. But I was unable to find anything really uh, clear that I, that I could work on. But I, 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 I still think that, that that should be one of the main things that uh, should be studied right now because, uh, like you say, if women are not going to complain, they're, they're going to say, well, there's no problem. And uh, actually, uh, I did get, I can't remember whether that's in the report or not, but there was uh, at a certain point commissioner who said, uh, it can't be that serious because we only got like 15 grievances this year, something like this. And, and of course, the reason they don't get many is uh, the ones that we've been discussing. Further to your point of just like looking at different uh, models that have been used, which I also am unaware of, I know that the U.S. has a whistleblower act that offers protection for people coming forward. I don't know what we have in Canada here. My understanding is there isn't one or it's it's minimal. So I'm wondering if, you know, if it could be built into the legislation somehow. I, I have no idea. There, I mean, is a, just... there is a whistleblower act applicable to the federal employees, I know. But I don't know how it works or whether it works. Yeah, and so in terms of some some sort of a maybe exploring that further, I don't I don't know. Um, I know, like I said, it's used in the US. Uh, we've spoken with a couple of people who have referred to it. I just don't know the intricate details of it or how maybe it could be used or applied in this sort of a setting. But when the whistleblower uh, denounces someone, then the administration has to step in. Uh, and that, that's our little problem here. The administration is uh, basically the gang you don't trust right now. No, I, I did a little bit of research. I believe that there is uh, a section in the criminal code, but I can't think of it off the top that covers whistleblowers, but it's very specific and never really utilized. 
there's not a whole lot of case law, but I, I could be wrong. Again, I'm not a lawyer. It's just something that I looked into, Lee, when we were talking to Ruben Coward. One of our past uh, podcasts, we talked about whistleblowers. Well, Michelle, I was going to just hit on something that you said, because when you talked about when there isn't, when, when the service is looking at the amount of people who have reported and it's low, they see it as there's no, no, there's no issue within the service. And Roger Chafin, the previous Calgary chief that we had on, spoke about that as well, saying these services have to recognize that it's a culture of non-reporting because then you're a rat. Uh, so if they're just looking at numbers of people who have reported and they don't think they have a problem because of the low numbers, it's completely inaccurate and that's not how they should be no, looking at and, it. No, and you wonder whether there should be surveys or whatever. What I recommended is that there be spot audit, that they have some kind of auditor who's totally independent and who can just walk into a place and start interviewing a lot of people without warning them that he is coming. Uh, because uh, if they have these visits by high-ranking people and that they're prepared for them, well, they, they can organize the response. But uh, I thought that uh, there were situations where it was obvious that the women were being abused and that uh, if somebody stepped in there, uh, without any kind of advance notice and started speaking to everybody in the room uh, and that 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 person would realize what is what is going on and uh, wouldn't need to wait for someone to file an, an official grievance and then there can be a response from the from the administration I still wonder if that would help, though, only because so now people come forward and you have these spot audits and they've talked or spoken with the person who has come in unannounced. But if the organization isn't going to do anything with that information or that data and they're not willing to look at it or they're going to spin it in a certain light or there, there's no overarching umbrella that will actually deal with it and met out meaningful consequences and hold people accountable, nothing can change. Well, the the person who comes in that way would have to be someone, a strong authority, and that could uh, monitor the response to his uh, his recommendations. Uh, other, otherwise, like you say, it's just a more general warning that can just so then legislation would have to change somehow allowing an outside organization who maybe is comprised of individuals who haven't been handpicked per se from because of their policing background but have an maybe an interdisciplinary group that comes together that can can look at this uh, and then put forth recommendations. Okay, this for this type of behavior, this is the consequence. And no, you don't need the union to get involved. And no, you don't need the chief. If you have demonstrated a pattern where you have two or three complaints or have been found guilty of harassment or whatever, you're gone. You're not protected. You don't get to keep your job and your pension and all that. Yes, and, and I think you're right. It could be multidisciplinary in the sense that that person could realize also whether this is causing undue stress, that it's uh, causing uh, some kind of mental uh, anguish or 
or something like this, and that there has to be an intervention at that level. Along with what Susan is saying, I mean, if we're not keeping track and policing, which we don't do a good job of every single incident, a lot of times because of the amount of movement that an individual is able to have in a policing career and the fact that according to the Act, the Police Services Act, after two for informal and after five for formal, it comes out of an officer's um, file. So this misconduct is literally like a get out of free uh, jail card because it's out of their file and they can just move on with their career. And I think one of the recommendations that some of the women made, which was very simple, why aren't we tracking that? If it's certain types of misconduct, whether it comes up, I mean, first of all, I don't think it should ever come out of your file and you shouldn't be a supervisor if you've harassed somebody at work. I mean, it's sort of a no brainer. But especially if you've done it multiple times, why are we not keeping track of these things and making sure that these people are held accountable, like Susan says, and then bye-bye after a certain number of times. I don't know how many times we have to test our theory. It's not only they don't uh, keep uh, a file, they destroy files. Uh, I tried in many instances to get personal files. I had a way of getting to them without them knowing who I'm looking for and all of this. It was very complicated. But when some women told me, uh, well, uh, it was investigated five times over 10 years in my case and this and that, and then I get their, the, their personal file and nothing's there. It disappears. Well, and it's the way supervisors are reporting it too. If it's a discussion as opposed to actually, I mean, if they're, if they're, if they're not even documenting the complaints and they're, so they're not being transparent about the process with the victim. They're not documenting the complaints the way they need to be. Or if they are, they're getting rid of them after a year or two. That's problematic. All of it's problematic. Well, this is what's happening. And, uh, I, uh, I, I was uh, very worried about that and, and talked to uh, the commissioner about it. And uh, I said, it's it's pretty strange that when you want to get rid of somebody, you say, oh, we have it in his file. He's a malinger. He's always in trouble, this and that. And that's in the file. But then when it goes the other way, suddenly it's not in the file. So uh, the process isn't really uh, clear either. Well, I just wonder if there was some sort of outside agency that could keep track of the complaints and it, not necessarily then investigate them or whatever the case may be, but just someone that can, some outside body that somehow the complaints funnel into where then at least the names are kept track. I, I have no that, idea. That, that, just, would have I don't know. A, that would have to be a policy. And then all of these services would be, have to be held accountable for not following but the problem with police services is we have books thick and i know the listener can't see me but right now i'm showing thick we have these thick books full of policies and procedures but honestly they're not even worth the paper they're written on if nobody follows them they're not no and uh if you talk about putting control or to uh outside agencies then the response you get is well, we can't have a system where we don't trust our own police. And and, and that, that basically is one of the problems that the government seems to be facing. It won't admit that uh, there are 
circumstances where it can't trust the system to police itself. Well, I think that just speaks to the greater issue of can you even trust government then? If they're not even willing to acknowledge this is going on, what else are they not willing to acknowledge that's going on? I mean, we see it now with the different military stuff that has come out over the past six, eight months. You see all these different, you know, articles that come out about, oh, this woman, this happened to her, or this happened to her. And they're from across Canada, but no one actually can compile it together to see that this is just, this is a systemic issue that doesn't just impact the armed forces. It impacts RCMP, policing organizations, any male-dominated. I mean, it's just all levels of government. It's pervasive. There are, I don't know if you uh, or any organizations can make specific recommendations and have them debated somewhere. Uh, one of the committees of the House is the Commission, Committee on National Security. Uh, I appeared uh, twice before that committee, but my impression was that they had no real authority um, and uh, I don't know if they have uh, any kind of real influence either. I don't know because I don't follow partisan politics very much, but, but there should be somewhere in the system where we can present our case and have someone really look at it, but also make it very transparent so that people know what's going on. Well, uh, this is so interesting that you say that because I was just involving the ladies here too, um, looking at trying to get something moved ahead somewhere at some level of government. But that in 2017, the government of Canada actually adopted a national action plan in response to the UN Security Council, their resolution 1325, that they're looking to support women's full participation in peace and security efforts. And as far as I can tell, relating to, you know, supporting police women's participation in peace and security efforts and empowering and advancing gender inequality and policing in Canada, the federal government's failing as are the provincial and municipal governments as well, because women in policing are not being protected. And if you can't protect women who are in positions uh, of security and authority, how on earth are you going to protect women in general? I, I don't know. Well, these UN things to me are just about participation in conferences. I I really don't believe they have any kind of real impact. So they're fluff. They're fluff. It's smoke and mirrors, flavor of the day. We're going to sign up for this and everybody's going to think that we're doing great things, but there's no follow through and behind, which is what we see continuously. If there is, they should show it. They should tell us what it is and what the impacts have been and how it's changed things. And that, that's what I keep saying in, in my reports. Uh, I don't care what you say you're going to do. Show me what you're doing. And show me what impact it has really on real life situations. I want to know that the number of women that are on stress leave is going down 50% and 75%. And I want to know why it's happening. What is it that's been done that's changed things? I also want to know who, how many are leaving. What's the retention? Is the retention improving? Well, that, that's another thing. As you know, when the new commissioner was appointed, she said that by, I think it was this year, uh, there would be 30% of women in the RCMP. And of course, it's not even close. It hasn't really moved very much or at all. 
And, uh, but I'm told that the hiring process has increased tremendously the number of women that are hired. So if you hire more and you got less uh, five years down, uh, they mustn't be staying very long, or the ones that were already there are leaving at a big rate. So what what is it that is going on? I would like to know. I tried to find out when I did my report, but they told me they had no statistics. Of course they don't, because then that would just expose that they're not doing a good job. They're fa- They're failing. They're failing while they may be hiring numbers and getting their numbers up, if that's even true, because I don't personally know of any woman who wants to go into policing at the moment. But also, if you can't retain them, that's great if you have 30%, but if they're all leaving after a year, two, three years, that means nothing. There's, yeah. I went to several uh, recruitment conferences and it was all, the subject was about recruitment of women because it's a huge problem. Women are not interested in policing. So it was all about how are we going to get more women? And it was interesting because one of the researchers at the conference stood up and said, why are we looking so hard at getting women to join us when we're not looking at why we're not retaining women within us? Like, and she was bang on. That is exactly the problem. Why can't we retain good women? And why are their why are their careers remaining stagnant? It doesn't make sense. Their promotion rate has been very low all through these these years. And the commissioner told me that in the last two years, she has made sure that there were much more women being promoted. But then I interviewed some of the women who had been promoted, and they said, yes, but it's true, except that they're doing it the wrong way. They're telling everyone, oh, we have a quota this year. We've got to give uh, uh, promotions 50% to women. And they said, well, we don't want to be that woman, because then they look at us and they say, well, you're only there because of this program for women, not because you can do the job or that you're qualified. And that, of course, uh, undermines those that are qualified because they're seen as part of the big basket of people coming up just because of their gender. Uh, so, so this is a vicious circle too, uh, in the sense that uh, it's, it's only about numbers. But this is where I think the whole thing is wrong and that it all begins with a career plan. Because if you have a career plan that it's being followed and that it's fair, the women are not going to leave at that rate, and they are going to be promoted because they're getting the training, and uh, they can do the job as well as the men. Everybody knows that by now, although uh, there's still a gang who won't admit it. Who's creating the work? The, the career plan? What, what does that look like? The, what I was told is that uh, after they finish uh, the, the six-month course, they have a choice of three places where they might be sent, but they don't necessarily uh, choose that place to send them. And usually they want to send them uh, to a northern place that's far away from their support group. And usually you can't be appointed in the province where you come from, which uh, 
I never clearly understood. But anyway, what, what happens is that it, it seems to be a sort of an HR thing uh, in cooperation with the places where they're looking for appointments. And, and they look at the, I guess, the different uh, criteria and, and look at the candidates and, and decide. And once they've decided, they sit down with that woman and uh, discuss the career. And I was told that is the only discussion about careers that ever happens in the whole time there with the RCMP, unless they uh, insist on some kind of uh, meeting with a supervisor uh, to tell them, I don't like what's going on. I have a career in mind. I'd like this course and that course and things like this. But otherwise, there isn't some kind of a long-term career plan that people are looking at in designing then the process for courses and promotions. But if they don't have that, they won't have any retention because you, you, you can't you know, want to be a police officer in the RCMP and be in, in the beginning ranks all your life. So uh, you've got to have some kind of idea of what you'd like to do. You want to specialize in some field or you want to do some management work or you want to change venue. But don't you think that takes time to, like over your career as you're experiencing things to figure out what what you enjoy, what your niche is, you know, like some people like doing you know, a traffic and uh, enjoy that part of policing, you know, uh, investigating, you know, some people, that's, that's their niche. Um, Someone brought up to me during when I was doing interviews before that, you know, this idea of fluidity in your career. So you want to go try something out that people should be allowed to go. They should allow for that movement to move in and out of positions more freely to, to not only expose yourself to different types of work, but then also find out what do I like to do? What am I good at? So then you know what courses to take. And there should be set times for when, you know, all introductory level courses, all officers should have those by their third year or whatever the case may be. So just this idea of fluidity to be able to explore different career paths and figure out what, what might be for yes, you. Yes, and it, uh, it might depend also on their previous experiences or education. If you want to be a fraud officer or an internet crime officer, well, you, you don't have to run the mile in three minutes. So uh, it's, it's a different kind of training that you're looking for. But they must know uh, in, in a police force where their weaknesses are and what kind of people they need to fill the jobs in, in those sections. And then uh, when they have candidates, it must be able to identify those that would want to work in that area. I can't speak to the RCMP, obviously, but I do know um, in the more municipal forces, especially in Ontario, at least, it's the, the attitude is jack of all trades, master of none. And there's lots of theories on that. Why do they make officers, once they find that niche, that Lee's talking about why do they make them move on if they're not looking for promotion, if they're really good at their job. 
And it's unusual when you compare yourself ourselves to the public, sorry, the private sector, because if you had a top financial uh, officer in a bank or whatever, making you all the money in the world, you certainly wouldn't send them back to the wicket booth to speak to people in line. But that's what we do in policing. And uh, uh, some people feel it's a it's a way to be uh, keep everyone in their in their know their place. It's for positional power. It's so that no one's more knowledgeable than anyone else, or so there's none of that group think within an area. So when a group of individuals can't become so familiar with each other that they overthrow the management or something. I'm still not sure what sense it makes, especially when we go back to this whole recruitment issue where we are trying to hire people with specific abilities and knowledge. And, and we, we say we want that knowledge, but then when they get here, we go, oh yeah, we don't care. Uh, you can go work there. Now. Or there there are those areas that require that very specific knowledge, but they're not actually promoting the people who have that knowledge. They're promoting the people from the hockey change room. So it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, and I'm in it. I can't answer that question. Well, this is why, this is why, you know, I, I concluded in the end that, uh, it wasn't just a problem of harassment. It was a problem of general bad management. Bad management in every sense of the word. I don't know that they they can fix this uh, on their own. And this is why I thought that uh, unless they break up the RCMP into three different organizations or at least separate them within their and specialized people in each uh, section, that uh, there wouldn't be a real reform. And I thought the reform would be good for the women because then they wouldn't be, like you say, uh, trying to look for clones and uh, that, that they would look for people who fit the description of, uh, of the people needed in each specialized group. And if, if some people just love trafficking, there's nothing wrong with that. But just leave them there. And, and then if somebody says, I hate this, but uh, I love to work on computers and uh, financial uh, reports, well, you don't keep them giving traffic tickets. It's, it's very interesting that you you know have said that because Calgary police I think it was 2017 or 2018 they brought in an outside HR specialist uh, who was a civilian who had over 20 years of experience and she did not last long she was in the also in the paper saying you know this is the most archaic organization I've ever worked for it's a bunch of cowboys running around not wanting to listen to anybody else basically and so she left because she's like, I can't, my hands are tied. I, I have no authority to make any changes, nor do they want me here. Why did they hire her? Well, I, I know there was a plan. I also think too, even if there's a plan, the unions also come into play here, I think, in terms of what's allowed, what's not allowed, that even if a chief or, or, or someone higher up in the organization has all these great plans, I think the organization comes into play as to what can and can't be done. I have to go back and read the articles again. Well, from talking to Roger Chafin, who was the chief at that time of Calgary, he does 
say that she was brought in because they recognized there was a problem, that things were not being done the way they they should be done. And that his executives, he had lots of group meetings with this um, person that was brought in with the executive level and the officers were very angry about her feedback, about the culture, about what needed to be changed, about the misogyny, about the sexism, about all of that. And he recalls that they were so upset that days later, they're still talking about things she said. So he said, clearly it resonated, but it made them angry. And to me, that's all shame. Like it's the mirror because they actually have been behaving that way themselves. Otherwise, why are you angry? But did they change their behavior? Didn't appear so. And uh, she wasn't, you know, so she, she was brought in for this reason and then not accepted with the opinion because it doesn't fit what they want their narrative to be or what they're comfortable with. And comfortable was, I think, the word that Roger used. But that was also admitting that there was something wrong in the way they were doing things. It seems very hard for the police to admit that they've got a problem and and that the problem is self-induced, you might say. Absolutely agree. So Michelle, as we like come to a close here today, it's been such an honor to speak to your honor. <laughs> and do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to share with the audience that you think are important? I'd like uh, the audience to feel concerned about what's going on. The police, uh, policing is important for all of us. It's not only a question of national security and personal security. It's uh, our way of making sure that the law is applied and that the law treats people fairly and doesn't discriminate. And uh, if we have a problem with the people in charge of ensuring that, then uh, I think our democracy is in jeopardy. So it's, you, you can't just sit at home and say, it's not my problem. It's everybody's problem. And this is why I tried to get people to speak to their members of parliament or or the people they know in government and try and force a, a national debate on the issue. And that has failed so far, but, uh, but I think if more people are involved and more people uh, intervene at some point, uh, there may be a, a real debate on the issue and uh, government will just be forced to do something. It's, it's, um, it's hard to accept that you have to force government to do its job, but it, it, it doesn't see the problem the way we do. And uh, I don't know how to explain to these people that they should put themselves uh, in a way that they see things from the perspective of the victims and not just from the perspective of the organization that likes the status quo. And uh, it, it's always hard to change things in a big institution. You know the, the, the expression, too, too big to fail? 
Well, maybe the RCMP is too big because it is failing right now. But I think we we all do we can all do our little bit depending on where we stand. But but if uh, a great number of people do uh, take take on the responsibility to say something, uh, we might get better results in the future. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming and thank you for speaking with us. It, I mean, I look forward to hopefully more conversations with you moving forward to try to bring keep this issue uh, at the forefront and bring it more so to the forefront with the government. I don't know how to do that. So that's where you come in and you other ladies come in. But thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Behind Blue Doors podcast to catch the latest episodes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our website at www.behindbluedoors.org. Take care and until next time.